Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to RMIT Gallery. I've learned to pause when there's noise. <laughs> I'm Suzanne Davies, I'm the director of the gallery, and it's our great pleasure to welcome you here this evening. My task is literally to invite you and welcome you into our house and then to hand over to Associate Professor Lawrence Harvey, who will conduct the evening. Lawrence is uh, Director of SAIL. Am I right, Lawrence? Director of the SAIL Sound Studio. SAIL Sound yeah. Studio. He's an esteemed colleague of ours and he's done an enormous amount of work, very creative work with his gallery. We couldn't think of a better person to ask to conduct the evening. Lawrence Harvey. Thank you very much, Suzanne. Thank you. Um, as Suzanne explained, I'll be um, the chair for tonight. In just a few moments, I'm going to introduce our, our two guest panellists for um, our roundtable on the Big Bang. So, uh, first of all, welcome to all of you for being here. As we always do before um, these types of events at RMIT, I'd just like to, on behalf of the university, acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations as the traditional owners of the land on which the university stands. And RMIT respectfully recognises elders, both past and present. By way of some other thank yous, just before we move on to introductions, I'd also like to thank the EU Centre at RMIT for the drinks provided in the foyer tonight. And the EU Centre is um, co-funded through a grant from the European Union and RMIT University. Tonight's event is also part of the Melbourne Knowledge Week 2014, which has been proudly presented by the City of Melbourne. And the third and final one is that, uh, just to remind you, that this is in fact um, an early event of Recharge, which is the sixth international biennial of new media, being hosted um, also by Experimenta. And it will open at the gallery on the 28th of November and will also include a new work by Arvel, which we'll get to during the course of tonight's talk. So, on to the actual main part of tonight. I'd like to introduce now um, Katie Mack and Arvel Kretzky and just give you a few details about them before we, we launch into uh, the main part of the evening. Katie currently holds a DECRA, which is a Discovery Early Career Researcher Award from the Australia Research Council. And her topic for this particular award is Dark Matter Particle Physics and the First Sources of Life in the Universe. So you can see why we asked her here tonight. Um, Katie is currently based at the University of Melbourne in the Astrophysics Group, which is part of the School of Physics. And her PhD in Astrophysics was awarded from Princeton University. So, welcome Katie. Thank you. Uh, on my left, uh, Abel Prinsky, who is actually um, one third of a collective, the other two thirds um, being Abel's brother, brothers, I should say. Uh, Abel studied music, German language and literature and social sciences and history in Wuppertal and completed his Master in Sound Studies at UDK in Berlin. He's been the recipient of numerous um, awards and scholarships, most recently the Mercedes-Benz Kunst Award in 2014 and a Young European Artist Trieste Contemporanea Award in 2013. Uh, in addition to the upcoming experimental exhibition, he'll also be part of IC in Dubai. Uh, Upcoming, see? Yes. Yes, thank you. Uh, and there's also numerous other um, international festivals and events in uh, Europe. Welcome, Arvo. Right, um, now in, in preparation for tonight, uh, we caught up, we being Katie, Arvo, and myself, we caught up for coffee uh, last week, and so it was a, it was a bit of a sort of um, crash course in meeting each other and finding out a lot more about sound art and a lot more about Katie's work as well. And uh, I asked Katie that, in fact, it's just, you know, you do for these things, the logistics for tonight's talk, she needed any um, particular equipment or, in fact, for her research, did she need to be near um, radio telescopes or anything like that? And she said, no, as an astrophysicist or theoretical physicist, all she needed was pen and paper. So... <laughs> This was very easy. We didn't have to um, pose on the gallery or experiment to line up a uh, radio telescope for us. 
Um, but what we were able to do is get you an RMIT standard issue whiteboard. <laughs> Those of you who work, you know, these are actually getting much, much rarer these days. We do have one in the hub, by the way. Um, so what I thought we might do, first of all, is ask Katie to give us an explanation of what in... Um, in general language, we refer to the Big Bang because um, language and terminology is not only quite important but really fascinating for um, the links between sound and astrophysics. So, Katie, what is the Big Bang? And um, she'll be doing some drawings for us as okay. well. Thank you. So, uh, so, you're familiar with, I think, the TV show, The Big Bang Theory? Um, so, the theme song of The Big Bang Theory actually has a really good explanation of the Big Bang Theory, which is the whole universe, what is that? Let's see. the whole universe was in a hot, dense place, then nearly 14 billion years ago, expansion started. And the rest of the song has some factual errors, but that part, that part is correct. Um, when we talk about the Big Bang Theory as physicists, uh, we don't really, we're not really talking about the singularity, the, the point of, you know, everything that was in a tiny, infinitesimally small point and it expanded out from that. What we're really talking about is just that the universe was smaller and hotter and denser in the past. And so the way we think of, the way we know that is so we think the universe is expanding. So if you think about you know the size of the universe, um, it's getting bigger. Okay, so this is sort of the size of the universe today and it's it's expanding over time. So time is this way. Um, and if we know that the universe is expanding now, then the universe must have been smaller in the past. And so we can kind of just sort of draw the expansion back. And if you, if you draw it back, we know that the universe is getting larger and cooler and less dense, then sometime in the past it must have been hotter and denser and smaller. Now, when I talk about the size of the universe here, I'm really talking about the size of the observable universe. Um, the universe may be infinite in size, but it may also still be growing, and that's a complicated concept. But the size of the observable universe um, in the past was smaller than it is today, and the, and the area, the, the volume of space that we think about, everything that's in the observable universe today was in a smaller space in the past. And so there was a time um, about 380,000 uh, years after the Big Bang, after sort of, well, sort of if you take this back to, if you extrapolate this, you get sort of time equals zero. Um, where you've extrapolated back to where size equals zero. So the size of the observable universe to be extrapolated back could be a single point. This is how we define the beginning of the universe. So if you go to this point 380,000 years after that time, which you might think of as the Big Bang singularity, um, within that time period, the whole the universe was full of sort of hot gas, uh, plasma, um, protons, electrons, and particles, and the radiation, and it was all this sort of primordial soup. And so one of the, one of the really big differences between that time and, and today, aside from it being a lot hotter, it was about 3,000 degrees Kelvin, which is more than 3,000 Celsius. Um, at that time, it was a lot hotter, it was a lot denser, it was smaller, but also it was full um, of light and heat and, and particles. And so although, you know, in space, no one could hear you scream because right now we live in space that's mostly a vacuum. There's very little, you know, in space. At this time, it was so full that the sound could travel. And so we can talk about the sound of the Big Bang in terms of this time, the sort of what we call the hot Big Bang. And that's just, that's, and all that is is that the universe was hotter and denser in the past. We don't know if there was a singularity, if there was a single point. There are different theories where instead of extrapolating back, there's actually kind of uh, this period of time when the universe was expanding really quickly and maybe the beginning of the universe was much farther back. But we can, we can talk about the hot Big Bang, which is the, sort of the Big Bang theory. Um, as all of that time when 
when the universe was hot and dense and, and filled with radiation. So, is that a good enough for him? Thank you very much. Yes. The, um, I've got something very interesting linked to that. I don't know if you can remember if you were six inches or not, but um, we did have a message from the Pope for today's talk. <laughs> for those of you that have been online this afternoon and seen um, uh, one of the new decrees from the, it's from the Papal Scientific Group, um, have actually agreed that yes, in fact, the Big Bang does exist and it's not incompatible with any other ideas about where the universe awesome. came from. So there you go. Absolutely. Uh, but she did say that it was a hand and creator in the making of that. So I think we've just gone one step back and made sure they're okay. Um, uh, but from a sound art or musical perspective, um, one thing that we noticed the day in the conversation, there's, there's a, very much a shared language. Um, we kept talking about ideas about frequency, about vibration, patterns and time and density. These are all, all, all words that as Katie were using and we were thinking, well, yeah, we have equivalent of that in, in the sound world. So I thought, maybe could you just now explain some of your interest in, in the Big Bang and uh, its underpinning for this upcoming uh, show? Yes, um, the first thing I thought about was um, I learned in school that it's not possible to hear sound in the universe or that sound breaks. They cannot travel in the universe. And um, then I had other thoughts about a new work, maybe what would be if sound would never disappear. If we talk something and it will be always there, the sound gets weaker and weaker. And um, the sound waves are still there, always around us, or that they are surrounding all of us. And um, this was maybe the idea, how would it sound like if there are always sound waves around us and what would be the earliest sound we would be heard or we can hear. And this is um, the sound of the Big Bang and this was the beginning of thinking about um, how would it sound the Big Bang um, and um, the sound waves were really, really low. They were not hearable for our human ears. I think many thousand times lower than we can hear today or than the human ear can hear. Um, and I think um, the most fascinating thing is that um, that also fascinates almost everybody, I think so, that this beginning of the universe, beginning of our life, and um, we have the imagination to think of um, that it would be maybe possible to hear the sounds, and we talked about it, that it is um, still possible to see sound waves um, yeah. in the sure. universe. And this is really interesting to think about it. Should I explain that a little bit? Yeah, yes, so, so um, in, this, in this time of the, the sort of primordial soup, the primordial plasma of the, of the Big Bang, um, there were sound waves traveling, and these these sound waves uh, produce sort of ripples in the density, so compression waves, just like sound traveling through a room. And over time, as the universe expanded, at some point, those sound waves became um, became density fluctuations that, that could grow. And so at some point, the universe expanded so much that you get these, it's sort of like frozen ripples in a pond, where the the you stopped having this plasma, this region filled with with radiation, and instead you just had the matter, and the radiation all came, went away and left sort of these ripples in the in the matter distribution. And we can actually see those patterns now. Um, I'll just yep. go up to the Sorry. <laughs> um, so we can actually see those patterns now in the way that galaxies are distributed on the sky. So if we if we have you know some region of the sky with galaxies in it, and this is my theorist drawing of galaxies. Um, they're, you know, they're distributed, there are lots of little galaxies and big galaxies, and they're sort of spread out, but there's a, there's a sort of scale at which there are more galaxies separated by that scale than by, other, by smaller scales. And if you draw a picture of like how, how much the galaxies are separated by, there's this, this scale that comes out, and you can see that in the distribution of galaxies. And what that is, is that's, that's sort of the wavelength of the, of the sound wave, the, the sort of biggest sound wave during the Big Bang. And we can see that pattern now. So it, we, and we can see little, 
like little harmonics on that, um, so we can see other ripples at different at different frequencies. Um, and that that all originated from from basically quantum fluctuations, from when the universe was so tiny that it acted like a quantum system, uh, which is something that only microscopic things do now. But at the time, that that complicated physics had left this imprint. And so we can see in the pattern of the light that comes to us from this early time, which is it's still coming to us today, because everywhere we look, if we look far enough, we see sort of this leftover light from the Big Bang. Um, in, we can see the pattern in that, we can see the pattern in the distribution of galaxies. And this is telling us about, about the waves, the sound waves going through the universe at that time. And so we really have a, a picture, we can take photographs of that first sound of the Big Bang. Yes, and I think it's um, also interesting that there are some scientists who tried to simplificate those data. Yeah. Um, one John Kramer, and the other is Mark Whistle. And um, I think it's really interesting to read them about how they try to simplificate those data because um, I think there's a problem, um, and I think this is a small artistic problem because um, it's, I think for me it's a little boring to simplificate only that because they use sine waves, normal sine waves, to transform it into a music or sound. And um, the other problem is that you have to pitch those tones so high um, that you lose the feeling of, um, of the Big Bang, of the fascination of the Big Bang, of the yeah, of the power of the Big Bang, because I think um, that needs more uh, artistic translation, um, the science. Um, I, I was referring to a process where if you, effectively we had visualization, you might think about a graph as a visualization, but a graph isn't, a graph is explaining something else, it just has numbers behind it, and then we, we use images. And sonification is a very similar process, except with sound. So you may have the same, um, same data or some, some numbers, and you give them musical pictures or, or assign rhythms, and so there's what we call a mapping process. Um, but you're quite right, there's, there, there is a, there's a very strong aesthetic component, and you do notice that when that's missing. But also, but also in some ways, it's not necessarily about being giving a one-to-one -one or accurate representation, because imagination is incredibly important in this, I think, in this room. Um. So, the imagination. Well, what I mean is that we do have to bring creativity to that idea because we're explaining something which is um, very difficult to grasp in the first place. It's very difficult to understand, and so we need. I, I agree with you that we need yes, a yes. approach. Yes. Yeah, a sort of a sort of analogy, right? I mean, in, in my in my field, I use analogies for everything because it's you can't really imagine these scales and these, these masses and, and the, the conditions of the Big Bang, but you can, you can come up with analogies like ripples on a frozen pond and that makes sense. And I think that sounds like what you're trying to do is yes. find an analogy with sound. Yes, I think, um, yeah, I think it's a little bit, um, it's good to read about it, but I think um, it's good to get the emotional, essential yeah. feeling of, um, or also physical feeling of what happened. And one way you're talking about rhythms and vibration, rhythms on ponds, my attention keeps being drawn back to this image over on the wall, this particular work over here as well, that it's somehow this very story. And this exhibition talking about the next one, and we had these ideas there as well, which I'll use that to just jump to another point that we, we uh, traversed briefly the other day, and that was, and two of the concepts that you've touched on again tonight, Katie, around. Um, First, the first idea being that I find it really fascinating that these vibrations have travelled through the universe just hundreds and hundreds of thousands of millions of years ago. Um, uh, and they, they could actually fl flow through space. And seeing that they're now imprinted on the background yeah. of space as well, that somehow we're living in this, this sort of static or frozen, frozen idea of sound. And um, my, my background is in composition and, and sound design, and I know that from that in Western and um, Middle Eastern and Eastern cultures, there's a long history of um, looking at these four fundamental topics of arithmetic, geometry, music, and astronomy, originally called the Quadrivium. So these ideas that these four disciplines, uh, arithmetic, 
geometry, music, and astronomy, or sometimes architecture. It was all you needed to explain the world, and, and it's almost like we've made this big arc all the way back again um, with that today. So I do notice now that also teaching um, architecture and design students, they're, 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 they're visually extremely well developed um, in their ability to conceive and think images. They're not, not so great with sound. And the question I had for both of you is that do you think our, how do you think our world would be different if we had a had a much stronger understanding of what you're talking about, these fundamental ideas about vibration and sound, would the ideas maybe be as unusual to us? Well, you know, I've thought about that a lot. One of the areas that I work in relates to radio astronomy, and it's very easy to take radio astronomy signals and make sounds out of that. And sometimes people do try and find patterns within the sounds that you can't find just by looking at sort of decompositions of the sounds. Um, I think that it's it's a it's a kind of in my field a lot of what you have to do is try and see things in a different way um, to try to make intuitive leaps. You know, if you have some idea, you can think about it mathematically, or you can draw a picture and stare at the picture until it makes sense, or you know, try and find some other way of, of visualizing or imagining it. And I think that. Um, you know, using sound, thinking about acoustic vibrations um, is another another sort of tool in that set to try to come up with a different way of thinking about it. So thinking about those tools, I'm also interested in the way that you said in your discipline, you all have this, you have these analogies, and so how do you, as a, how do you agree on them? How do you, how do you <laughs> is this what conferences are all about? Well, I mean, an analogy is never, uh, is never perfect. Um, and so most of the time, we, we use them for uh, to sort of communicate with, with other people or to pass ideas around, but fundamentally our language is mathematics. Um, but in a sense, all of physics theory is some kind of analogy. I mean, we're trying to take uh, truths about the universe and, um, and come up with a model, a mathematical model that reproduces the same behavior. And so it's all, it's all in the sense of analogy. We don't think that we have the ultimate truth of the universe. We think that we have a model that fits our observations as well as possible. And we are constantly refining that. But it's always, it's always some kind of analogy. Um, Abel, you do have a background in, in sound and music. Have you ever thought it fairly effective if um, they had a different place in our, in our culture, our society, and our understanding? What might the world be like if uh, sound and vibration were? If people would think more about sound? Mm, I thought about this today a little bit. Um, I'm sure we all, um, we all hear really good. So um, if we walk down the street, we hear many cars, many um, airplanes, everything. But I think we are good in ignoring um, sounds, uh, not recognizing sounds. And um, I think this is just a question of um, training, training ears to hear um, sounds. So we will never be good, so good like dogs to hear so high frequencies. But um, but I think this is the most important thing that um, many of us um, have ignored sounds. And I think this is also the reason why many architectures well, architectural students build so many houses made of glass and concrete. So um, the atmosphere in those buildings is really terrible because there are so many echoes in it and you have to um, put so many carpets in those rooms and like, on the floors. They look really good, but they don't sound really good. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe they look shaped. Well, possibly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, in some of the other work, I don't know, we're not really asking you to talk about work that you're in the middle of making, so in some, some ways it's, uh, it's not a very fair question, but I'm, but I'm just wondering, um, why, why do you think people, this notion of Big Bang is so, um, holds such a place in our imagination? Um. Um, why is that such a... Uh, maybe, maybe also for the public as well. I mean, you start talking about the Big Bang, and I think people are really 
It sparks something in our imaginations. Yeah, I think it's um, the one thing that is the beginning of, of the universe. And um, I think there's no other, or there were no other similar powerful happening in the past, like um, the Big Bang. And um, I think this, uh, this was happening for our senses. Um, I think you can't imagine it. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think this fascination, um, I think probably. Yeah. It's a similar question to you, Pei, that given many years you've spent working in this field, you must get asked this question. You've got um, the ultimate person sitting next to you at a dinner party. So, <laughs> but, so how, when, when you discuss it with um, family, friends, what, what do you think the fascination about the Big Bang is? Well, I mean, I think everybody wants to know, you know, where we came from, where everything came from, how it all began. I think that's a, a sort of fundamental part of, of the human experience is, is that curiosity about the beginning and, and curiosity about the end, you know, how did the universe end, how did it begin, and knowing that the universe had a beginning, or it, it, as far as we can tell it did. Uh, it's a fascinating thing to want to know what that was like and how that happened and what, what it would have been like to be there uh, at that time. Uh, so it's, I think there's, you know, we just want to know. We want to know the, the extent of our, our knowledge, you know, as we, as we keep looking out into the universe, because it takes time for light to travel from one place to another, we're looking farther and farther into the past, and there's, there's a limit to that. We want to keep reaching for that limit and keep understanding more and more about where we came from and, and how it all began. And, and as a physicist as well, the Big Bang is a fascinating thing to study because the laws of physics were different at that time. When you get to those extreme densities and extreme temperatures, I mean, not 380,000 years after the Big Bang, but you know, fractions of a second after the Big Bang, you have matter behaving in a totally different way. Um, particles were very different. And so, you know, we try to recreate that kind of big environment with particle colliders and things like that. But we really just, we want to know, you know, how, how that happened. And it helps us to understand the laws of physics now, where that all came from, if we understand uh, what was happening at that time. This also came up the other day, this, this idea that um, physicists have a very different relationship at the time. They have to do that. Being a linear, or you know, just talk a little bit about the physicist yeah. concept of time. Yeah, so as a cosmologist, uh, somebody who studies the cosmos on the larger scales, there's, there's a mapping between time and space. So, as I said, you know, as we look farther out, we're looking farther back. I mean, if I look at the back of the room, I'm looking at several nanoseconds ago, maybe 30 nanoseconds ago. That's how long it takes light to get from that exit sign to my eye. Um, every Every little bit farther back, you're looking farther away, you're looking farther back. And so this is something that, that is, these things are inextricably linked um, in the mind of a cosmologist. And so I think about, um, you know, the time 380,000 years ago, I also think about that, or 380,000 years after the Big Bang, I can think about that as, you know, some number of years ago, or I can think about it as a distance, or I can think about it as the way that the light's changing as it's moving from there to here, all of those things are, are kind of linked. But there's also, I mean, we talked over coffee about the fact that to, to a physicist, the concept of now is kind of tricky as well. And this is, this is tough because if I think about now, like right now, I can, I can look at that exit sign and I can see it as it was 30 nanoseconds ago. And what does that mean? Is that is it is it lit now? Can I tell you that? I can't tell you that. I can tell you it was lit 30 nanoseconds ago. But if I think about now, um, that has a that has a strange meaning because I can't observe now somewhere else. Um, and there's also when you get into relativity, um, if you're moving quickly, time passes differently. So two people who are moving quickly past each other can disagree on whether one thing happened first or second. Simultaneity is broken. There's, it gets really uh, sort of, you know, twisty uh, if you're if you're a physicist to think about to think about time and space and it's all linked together. So it's exactly. a very different idea. And with um, and again, teaching teaching students who have met the subject of the Southgate study, something we do a lot of work around listening and attention. 
And of course, um, to do that, you have to be present, you have to be aware, you have to be concentrated. So um, we, we usually let it go for a couple of lectures, um, the mobile phones are out, etc., like that. And at some point, you have to pull focus and get people to, to attention. So this idea that even now might be a couple of nanoseconds away, I think one of the things about the modern world is, is we're kind of surrounded by now. So there's multiple screens all the time demanding attention as well. So, how, how does you, you find this concept of physics, how do you find that, does it influence the way that you think about time even just in the everyday and, and where you are? And you, were, you were on time for coffee. Right? <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, do, I do think about that a little bit. Um, because in my, in my field, I, I study you know, the first galaxies and I think about those things as existing, but they don't exist, they existed. And, and that, you know, that kind of messes with me. So I think about, um, you know, I'm constantly trying to kind of readjust how I'm thinking about time and space. And and also, you know, when things move through space-time, you know, I sometimes think about, um, you know, like if I'm, if I'm walking down the street, I'm sort of going through a path in space-time, right? And, and this sort of combination of space and time, you can think about a person walking down the street as sort of a trail in space-time, as sort of a path. And sometimes I think about that, like if I'm watching cars go by, you know, they're, they're sort of tracing out these sort of tunnels of space-time and, and, you know, you think about it, like being at a space-time location is not the same as being at a space location, it's not the same as being a time location, it's, but it's that sort of moment, that event. So, yeah, it gets into, it, it, it starts to sort of mess with the way you can see the world, but it, it's, it's, in a, it's in a really cool way, it's fun. Yeah. I know, to imagine when you have to sort of put your, your mind and your like that, that far as well and yeah. see, see and hear back that um, uh, well, where, how, did, how does time operate for you in your work? Um, in my work, I think it's, um, for me it's interesting also to think about, also to think about uh, time theories, um, especially if you think about the Big Bang and about the past, and um, there are a lot of time theories. We uh, were used to the Eastern, but the European, or Australian time theory, um, that this is very linear, and um, I also think that this does not work very well for, for artistic work or for, for a sound art piece, especially not in my case. Um, and I think um, that it's not good to have a composition from the beginning to the end to, to be narratively um, in a sound art piece. So you have to create something like, um, like a space where the sound is in that space, and maybe something like a sound cloud, which always surrounds us without um, any, any beginning or some ending. And um, this also affects, um, and it's also very interesting not, not to think about in, in that linear time structure. Yeah. So, so then, how does how does the how does the your concept of the audience as we always we always have sort of an idea of the audience as well? People coming. How 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 much time operate for them if they're coming in and hearing a short short amount of the work? Um. Yeah, I think we're coming in with our normal um, perception of time. Mm -hmm. I think we can't um, give it up on the door, or we can't leave it. Um. And so, but I think um, it would be possible to maybe to think about time. And um, uh, in science, um, some uh, many uh, scientists say that um, the human perception of, um, of presence, of, of now, is three seconds. Um, that we think, okay, three seconds is the present or is now past, and everything besides is the past or the future. And um, I think this is also, um, I will also include this um, thing into my um, art piece to have those three seconds of um, thinking about this is my presence and um, this is also yeah I think it's strong idea to think about that everything is the past but as we learn so there's much more about um, what past time. Yeah in a sense there's every time is still happening somewhere, you know, um, in, in, the, in the sense of how we can see it, you know, so there's no, you know, time, our time isn't really isolated in, in 
when you think about it in physics, there's, you know, the, the past still exists if you look at it far away, you know, and, and this is, it, 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 you can't just think about it as now, as just now, and everything else is past sort of future. Mm -hmm. yes. Do you think about it in your everyday life, about what the past means? Yeah, yeah. It, because I think you also socialize in another way, so you have another understanding of um, of now. Yeah, it's it's a it's a difficult thing because there's you know there's certainly time passes and things end and you know you kind of go on with your life. But I also uh, I also think about the the very distant past still being there, and I still think about I, I, I you know you kind of everything follows on everything else and affects everything else and so you kind of, you think about it as you can't really destroy something that happened, you know, if, if I was, if, if we were on a planet, you know, 65 million light years away, we could, and we had a powerful enough telescope, we could watch the dinosaurs on Earth, you know, like if, if right now we were on a planet 65 million light years away. So, you know, it's still, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to sort of talk about, but yeah, it does change how you think about time when you think about it as connected to space and distance. Yes. Yeah. I, I, I caught, well, I overheard about it because I wasn't paying enough attention at home the other day, so um, radio possibly TV to program about dreams. Research and dream because one of the one of the critical things about dreaming is that you have to suspend, or your brain suspends that rational, logical part of how we process the world. And so once you do that, then a whole lot of things can just exist together simultaneously. And so how, how do you dream things up? How do you think things up? <laughs> like the theories you mean? Hmm. Um, well, I mean. So I, I don't I don't create new sort of physical models of the universe uh, myself. I, I mostly think about how to test models of the universe. But um, there's just you have to just kind of be creative, I guess. And there's a lot of creativity in my lab work where I try to think about what what we what we're trying to find out and what we can think what we we can test with observations. And I try to find a way to connect those things. Um, and it's. I think one of the one of the fun things about, about my work is that it is this very creative thing and you have to keep an open mind and you have to kind of learn about lots of different possibilities for observations, lots of different possibilities for theories, and try and uh, just sort of let your mind wander about, you know, well, I want to learn about this theory and, you know, there are radio telescopes. What can you do with a radio telescope that will tell you something about um, something that happened in the very early universe? And, and yeah, you just kind of have to, to let it all sort of, I don't know, marinate in your head and come up with new things. Um, always different qualities of time and need I'm going to come to some of your sound works in just a moment, but um, for you, where, it's almost like going back to that, that point where your works might start imagination. How, for you, how does work come about? How do you start? Thinking of the work, it's your, your, uh, some of your work, you collaborate first of all, you're a part of collaboration, but also your work is often on a very large scale. You work in spaces this size of cathedrals. What's that starting point for you? Um, for this work? Um, well, let's start with this bit. Yeah. Okay, um, I think the starting point was, was, I think, three years ago. When I heard about, um, I read an article about the sound would have disappeared, and um, this was the starting point to think about the, the idea and the theory, and also about Big Bang and everything around that theory. Um, but it was uh, was really hard to think about it. I, uh, to, uh, to do an artistic work, an artwork out of it because it's such a strong um, theory and it's, um, yeah, it's the, the biggest thing that ever happened in our universe. So uh, it need no, only does not need any um, artistic mm. translation, uh, first of all. And um, 
this was also why it took such a long time to, to think about it, what to do um, with that theory in the end. And with the um, philosophy that um, if you if you do Google and um, Arnold Krinsky, you'll see fantastic works that he has with his um, uh, brothers in the artistic partnership about some of their other prior work. And um, I was very interested in some of the um, very large architectural work you do. If you just, um, I'm going to just one thing. Can you just unlock the computer for us? Just gone over to Sweden. Thanks. Um, uh, I was uh, brought in a, a short sound example for us to listen to as well. But this, the, um, you develop software for your installations and uh, taking place with wonderful um, spaces, very large spaces. Why don't you talk a bit about some of the software and the process you, you go through in the, the larger ones? Um, yeah, I think um, we um, work on the software because um, we always thought about there are many multi-channel uh, surround systems uh, sound surround systems um, and you can work in normal spaces like this with surround sound um, there's a loudspeaker in every point for example and then you get surround if you stay in the middle or walk around and um, we thought about the idea if you have a real grid or big building um, that's not really possible to work with um, so many loudspeakers around um, in the building, and um, we um, thought about the idea that um, the human ear is um, used to hear very horizontally because of the um, yeah. yeah. It's the yeah. yeah. Okay, uh, and um, we can localize everything very good if it's in the horizontal plane. If, um, yeah, like cars or something like that. Um, but if we hear something uh, vertical, it's much more complicated for us to hear it like um, helicopters if you see them. Okay, when you see them flying, you also hear, or hear them from which direction they're coming from. But um, if you don't see them, sometimes it's um, not easy to localize them. And um, this was the reason, um, or this is the reason we. Uh, this basis we use in the software to have that, um, yeah, to have that, um, the problem of our vertical hearing to um, produce a surround system in big buildings only on one wall to use um, the reverb of spaces and uh, yes, to have a surround system only if you have one surface. Thank you very much for the computer uh, now on. Would you just like to talk, um, uh, as I said, I was brought an example of his work and just maybe talk about that. Uh, he's pointing toward the, um, the show that we're doing, I want to speak about it later in the panel. Yes, um, James. So this, so this is uh, part of the show that you're opening on the 28th uh, November? Yes, uh, but uh, some more weeks and I work on that song. <laughs> Also, the next one or two, three weeks, yeah. I hope so. Um, yes, and um, this is just um, the beginning of thinking about how would it maybe sound. Um, and uh, here, there's no, no sapphires on, um, on those loudspeakers, so it's much more um, lower in the sound. Um, I think for me, it's also important to have that physical feeling of um, sapphires waves to um, have standing waves in a, in a room, to have very, um, uh, to have two frequencies very close to each other, so that you really feel the um, bus waves on the lungs and um, that you have that physical um, perception of um, sound waves. Thank you. Um, we do have some time remaining, um, and if anybody would like to uh, ask questions, you can either project or I can cast the mind down. I'm there, Frank. It'd be great to hear, like, talking about analogies. Um, okay. um, we're, all, we're all there, so the astrophysicists in the house. Like, it'd be great to, uh, great to hear a, a, an analogy if you've got one for the, uh, the relationship between the electromagnetic spectrum and, and sound, like, as a physical movement of matter. Because it, it seems like there's a 
there's a lot of correlations, but I've never been able to get a really clear kind of um, description of exactly the difference. And, right. and how yeah. yeah, so there's a, there's a really good correlation. So, um, okay, so sound waves have, uh, have a frequency or, or wavelength those are connected where the, the sound wave is a compression of, of, of air or some medium. Um, so you can have sound traveling through a surface or through uh, liquid or through uh, a um, you know the air, um, and the the period of that compression tells you the pitch of the of the sound. With with light, with the electromagnetic spectrum, um, it's the it's how quickly the the light uh, the electromagnetic wave goes up and down. So electromagnetic waves always travel um, at the same speed through through a vacuum, uh, not through different medium. You can get you can change the speed of light if you're going through glass or water or whatever. But um, the, the speed to stays the same, but you can have different uh, wavelengths of light. And so the wavelengths that we, that we see with our eyes are um, somewhere around thousands of, of nanometers, um, so subatomic sort of scales. But there you can have radio wavelengths, which are um, centimeters or meters. So the, these are electromagnetic waves that are, you know, sort of this size can be radio. Um, and so the wavelength of that determines what kind of light wave it is. So there's radio on the low side, on the and then intermediate is sort of microwaves, which is sort of micron scale. Um, and then there's uh, ultraviolet, which is higher than visible, so or sort of higher frequency, smaller wavelengths. Invisible light, and then you can get into X-rays, you can get into gamma rays, and so there's this whole spectrum of as you change the wavelength of the light, you're changing the um, uh, you're changing what kind of light it is, and whether and we can only see a tiny part of that with our eyes, but the, the spectrum extends much farther. And one of the ways that this is really important, actually, in cosmology, is that as the universe expands, it kind of stretches out that light those light waves, and so the light coming to us from the hot big bang was emitted sort of in the infrared part of the spectrum, but it's been stretched out, so now it's radio wave, like, like, like sort of microwave wavelengths. And so that, because the universe is expanding, stretched out that light. So the light isn't passing, the light is not sort of dependent on the medium it's going through, but it is passing through space-time, and space-time gets bigger, and then the, the waves get bigger also. Hi, um, I just want to take the observation that I think you're in some ways we're both dealing with obviously similar topics and both of you are uh, producing knowledge and questioning knowledge about understanding the perceptions of time. Um, so my question is for Katie. Um, Katie, artists often consult or research the work of scientists or people in other disciplines. So Arvind's talked about certain uh, scientists whose research he's looked at to further his knowledge of his field. Have you ever looked at an artist's work or artist theories to understand your perceptions and knowledge of time? And if not, do you think that it might help or contribute to your field? So, um, this will be a bit of a cliche, but when I was younger, I was really into Dali um, because of the way that he thought about space and time, and, and also into um, uh, like cubism, you know, different ways of, of seeing the same. The same objects from different directions at the same time, you know, and sort of, and you can draw analogies between that and going to another sort of spatial dimension and looking down on our three-dimensional space and seeing the different angles. Uh, and so I was, as a kid, when I was trying to grapple with ideas of of higher-dimensional spaces and space-time, I did get inspiration from from you know, uh, Dali has this painting of of uh, Christ being crucified on this sort of fourth, fourth dimensional cross. Um, and so I thought about that kind of thing and about the, you know, um, how you can kind of, how things sort of stretch out and change over time and how that's captured in art. And that, that was something that, that helped me to kind of conceptualize uh, some of these crazy physics ideas that I thought about. Another question down the front. Perhaps given this incredible context, perhaps you could expand on that to talk about the dreaming that you've mentioned and the past, present and future combined in this time-space continuum in the sense of our upper, aboriginal understanding of the everywhere. Mm -hmm. 
So I'm, I don't know enough, as much about that. I'm, I'm uh, from America, and I haven't done a lot of, I haven't done as much sort of research into that as, as I as I'd like to. But my my limited understanding is that the linear time is not a not a thing that, that is part of Aboriginal culture, and so um, there's a, a sort of a much more fluid understanding of, of how things change over time, and, and it's not. It's more about the state of things rather than the time as a linear thing, um, and that's you know uh, it is it is something that, that can be uh, brought into a physics perspective as sort of much more real than just you know you step through you know sort of fixed uh, moments and go on like that. It, it is much more flexible in physics what time means and how it passes. So, I'm not sure if I'm answering your question or not. It's very much wrong. Thank you. Can I ask one other quick question? Please, yeah. and, that, and that is actually you. That's about the, the beautiful sounds that we've also heard as well. Um, for me, this reminds me of being in a primary memorial suit under water. And it's very bodily and very visceral. Um, do you place yourself in um, not just architectural contexts, but um, environmental context in order to work with this data and the sound of the context as well to to inspire the way you're interpreting. Um, she can speak in the For me, it um, it is like being underwater. Yes. So, do you find yourself in situations or environments that help you to imagine? The Big Bang concept. Yes, it is a number of concepts. Yes, um, yeah, um, I'm not sure there are any environments um, who can give me, or give me an idea of the Big Bang. Um, I think it's definitely not a big city. Um, <laughs> maybe it's more. Um, yeah, I think it's it will be maybe also the extreme um, landscapes or earth-like hills, mountains, also like um, the sea, and um, also think you said that this reminds you from the sound of underwater, and um, there are also some sounds recorded from babies in the stomach, and. Um, this is also very close to that sound, or could also remind a little bit. I think these are very, um, yeah, very strong moments, and um, that reminds of those sounds. Uh, a question here, and then one, one down back. Uh, uh, push the button up. some sort of composition? Is it a linear? Is it right. one sound, two sounds? Is it, from your perspective, how might this um, be organised? Yeah, so the... So... So the, the early universe was, uh, was mostly pretty uniform in the sense that there was not very much variability from place to place, but there were a few really big asymmetries. Um, that happened. One of them was that there was a little bit more matter than antimatter. And I don't know if you're familiar, but if you take antimatter and matter and you put them together, they annihilate and they 
produce radiation. And there was a little bit more matter than antimatter, and that's why we're made of matter and not antimatter, and that's why we're not just, you know, gamma rays floating through space doing nothing. Um, we were able, we're, we're sort of left over from the survivors of all the little annihilations. So, and there are a couple of things like that where there was just a little bit of an asymmetry that allowed all the structure to happen and allowed the sort of amazing diversity of, of what we see today. Um, if we hadn't had that, then we couldn't have we couldn't have come from a totally smooth, uniform state. Like you have to have a little bit of of uh, fluctuation. You have to have a little bit of asymmetry in order to get the universe we see today. And so one of the really big questions in, in physics is to try to understand where those asymmetries came from, um, where the little fluctuations in um, the, the primordial soup came from that grew into galaxies and clusters of galaxies and stars and things, um, where that came from, where this, this uh, matter-antimatter asymmetry came from. Um, and it's one of the big mysteries, really, uh, trying to figure out the origin of, of not the sort of uniform universe, but the origin of the, the sort of lopsided universe. That's what we don't understand yet. Um, I've got a question down here. Um, just stand the back of it. <clears throat> I don't know if this is kind of the best way to articulate this question. It's based on two part one. Firstly, with the universe expanding away from that slowing down, is it possible to kind of, for lack of a better word, predict where the center of that universe was? And secondly, is it possible for that hot back, big bang state to be existing now, just in a wavelength that we kind of don't know or were unbeknownst to us? Less than forever, something still existing, but we just—it's not not even in the physical spectrum, but in a way that we just don't know if it's still existing around us. Um, yeah, we, we can still see the Big Bang in a sense. Um, the because as we look farther back in space, farther out in space, we're looking farther back in time. If you look far enough back, you see that time when the universe was in this primordial state, and actually, every direction you look, um, there's light coming from from that time still to us. It's been traveling through space all this time from some distant part of the universe that, from our perspective, is still in that state. And so if every, every direction we look at, we're getting radiation from the Big Bang. And um, that's called the cosmic microwave background. And it's called microwave because it's the wavelength of that light is now in the microwave part of the spectrum. Whereas when it was emitted, it was sort of infrared and it was produced, it was gamma rays. Um, but it was, but yeah, that, that because of that stretching, uh, we're getting, we're getting, we're able to, to look at, like directly look at the Big Bang um, using microwave light. It's it's pretty. I mean, you can look at pictures of, of sort of how the you know, how the matter was distributed at that time. That you know, just a few hundred thousand years after the Big Bang, you can look at the picture of the whole universe by looking at the microwaves coming from every direction in the sky. Good. Um, thanks, Evan. Just down the front here. I think this might be an existential question. Um, you spoke about there being no beginning or end to the sound. I can't get beyond that. Is there, is there such a state without it being a loop? Can we step outside of our constructs of something? begins and ends, is there such a possibility of a fluidity? What's the, is, is there, how, how, else can I, how else can we think about there being, not being a beginning and an end? Can we? <laughs> I like it. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I think we can. <laughs> Just think about um, not having a beginning or not an end. I think, um, as you said, the very beginning of the Big Bang is also not very. Um, yeah. They're not. We're not really certain exactly yeah. what happened at that time. So maybe it was not really the beginning. So this is also maybe. Um, so this is also good to have. A, Installation without any beginning, so it's the sound is um, 
don't come in and um, the sound is already there. And, um, yeah. I, I understand that, but does it, can it exist in some sort of mathematical explanation? Um, like a, a, a sort of infinite in time but kind infinity of... just goes out. Yeah. And <laughs> um, there are there are theories of the universe that have um, a sort of cyclic thing where we, the, our universe begins at the end of a previous universe and it just keeps going. And, and there's also uh, a concept known as eternal inflation, which is where uh, the beginning of the universe that I sort of drew it as a sort of extra expansion at the very beginning that process could just keep continuing in different parts of the universe and there wouldn't have to be a beginning to that either. And you could have that that kind of going on forever. Um, and we, we would just be kind of coming out of a previous state of the universe um, and going on like that. So mathematically, there's, it's fine. There's no problem with... Yeah, <laughs> you don't have to have a starting point. And in fact, having a starting point is, is, is problematic uh, mathematically. So you may as well just go back, infinitely back, and, and have everything existing forever. <laughs> We've got time for one more really short question, just behind the things I or comment there. This is a bit cheeky. Um, I'm Elise and I work with Experimenter. But I was just going to suggest um, to you that there's two works in the Experimenter exhibition that deal with ideas of infinity and beginning and end. So one of them is Carlin Subsabi, one of them is Arbel Kavinsky's installation, and the other one is a series of prints by Makala Gleave. So perhaps by coming to the exhibition, mm. you might gain some more insight or some ideas into yeah. that book. <coughs> Thanks, everyone. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if it's actually possible to end on infinity, but we'll try. <laughs> and, uh, we, we, we have been talking about time, and one thing we'll have to agree on is that it is around about 7 pm <laughs> in this space time for the RMIT Gallery. Can you join me in thanking Katie and Arbel tonight? And just to remind you that um, Recharge, the sixth international manual of new media, will open in the gallery on the 28th of November, featuring new work by Arbel, and I welcome you all back for that opening and that exhibition. So, thank you very much.